have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner Today on Spirit in Action, we'll be visiting with Will Williams. Will was born in central Mississippi on September 11, 1943, and joined the military as a way past the limitations imposed on him because of his race and environment. He did two tours in Vietnam, suffered major PTSD, fully emerging from it only after September 11, 2001, as he found his voice speak out against war with the Veterans for Peace. Will's grandmother, Shoshone, was an early voice for nonviolence in Will's life, but his anger led him through years of violence and pain before he could understand and incorporate her words into his life. Will and his wife, with two friends, perform as the Madison Gospelers doing a cappella old-time religious music. Will, thanks for joining me today on Spirit in Action. How are you doing today? Yes, I'm doing good, Mark, and thanks for having me. Because what you're doing, I think, is something that has to be done with your radio program, and we need more of that in this country. I ran into you through the Winds of Peace newsletter, and uh, it was a really nice article talking about your speaking out with Veterans for Peace. How long have you been active with Veterans for Peace? Well, this chapter started about three years ago, and prior to that, I haven't been active in anything. One of the guys in Winds of Peace, Mike Bain, a Vietnam vet also, and that's how he got in touch with me and how I came up in the article that he was doing on Vietnam. He does a lot of work 
still and make numerous trips to Vietnam every year. Have you been a peace activist for a long time? Probably a couple of weeks after September 11, 201. Prior to that, I hadn't been active in anything. The tragedy of 201 kind of brought me out. I could no longer remain silent. That was due to the temperament of the country. It seemed like everybody was making September 11th a bad day and wanting revenge or bloodshed for what had happened. You know, I just thought of it in the context that this is not a bad day. It's the day I was born. I just say I wouldn't just sit idle and let people say this is a bad day and beat the drums of war without me speaking out. You were born on September 11th. What year? 1943. I was born in a small town in central Mississippi, a little town called Crystal Springs. I grew up during the Jim Crow era. It meant a lot to me that this day was being used as a day that we've got to come together to go kill. And since I had served two tours in Vietnam, I couldn't see the logic in what was happening. Would you have understood it back when you were in Vietnam? No. When I was there back in the 60s, I was angry, first of all. I left Mississippi because of the conditions there, because of the unfair treatment that people of color were under. So I went with a lot of hate initially. Just to get out of Mississippi was a big thing, and the military was a way out. The boot camp that I went through, that every soldier goes through, I think I was brainwashed in it, which made it easy for me to believe what I was hearing and even easier to kill people with the belief that I was doing the right thing. And it took until September 11, 201 to actually start thinking about the change that had come over me since that time in the 60s. You've gone a long road. You you grew up in Mississippi, and you said it was Jim Crow era back then. Can you tell me some specifics of what it was like growing up in Mississippi at that time? Well, it was a time when I think most mothers had fear, black mothers had fear, for their male children. One time I specifically remember, I was 12 years old when Emmett Till was killed. I think most people are familiar with that. I remember often being referred to by my mother as the same thing happening to me because I was one that wouldn't take abuse. And she saw me being killed had I stayed there. I couldn't understand the history of what we were being taught. I remember we had a, they, I don't even think they teach it anymore, it was the government. We were drilled on the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address. And I couldn't understand how one could say we all created equal when I saw these indifferences happening to my people simply because they were black. That was a question that stayed in my mind forever. It bothered me so much that I remembered that declaration verbatim. You know, I still remember it the same as I do my serial number for the military, that I couldn't see how this could be. So it kind of exacerbated the anger that I had for Vietnam. What really hit me was when I did sit and think about it, I was doing the same thing in Vietnam to people that I knew nothing about, 
I was calling them names that were just as derogatory as the ones that we were being called in Mississippi. And yet I was able to do that, even though I was taught to love. You can see I was kind of mixed up. And it took years for me to find myself. I didn't have freedom until after September 11, 201, because once I started speaking out, I felt free that I didn't have to go along to get along, that I had to be me. In 2001, you would have been coming up on 60 years old, right? And so all those years in between your time in Vietnam and there, it was still percolating around, wasn't settled? Yes. What happened uh, in 1970 when I was discharged, shortly after information about how we got to Vietnam, the Tonkin Gulf incident and all that stuff started to be leaked by Daniel Ellsberg, and I listened to it, and it bothered me to a point that it actually shut me down, because the more I would learn about how and why we went to Vietnam, the thought of what I had done in Vietnam kind of overwhelmed me. So for years, I was just in a shell where I cared about nothing except my family. 201 was the breaking of that shell for me to reclaim my life the way I think it should have been. I think I've done it through counseling for PT and being able to acknowledge what I did in Vietnam and why I did it and how I feel now about that and about war in general. Do you want to say anything about what you did while you are in Vietnam? Yeah, I was a E-5, a buck sergeant, my first tour. I was a squad leader in an infantry unit where we went out on what they call search-and-destroy missions. We'd go into villages, search them, and do exactly what the term meant, destroy it. We did that. Many times we would go. We didn't make contact or do any fighting, but most of the time when we went in a village, someone died. And in guerrilla warfare, it, where I was stationed within the Mekong, where we were fighting what they call the Viet Cong, you couldn't tell them from everyday people because they had no uniforms. They wore the same clothes that the peasants in the countryside wore. So you couldn't tell who you were killing. And at that time, it didn't bother me. I think I was inspired when I saw people that I was close to being killed. It was inspired me to kill more. And I stayed in that mode for a lot of years to the point to where when I came back after my first tour, I couldn't handle the protests. So I put in a request to go back to Vietnam to get away from it. When was that? I came back from Vietnam my first tour in December of 1966. And I put a 1049 in I think it was around mid-1967, shortly after we had gone on vacation to California and I encountered protesters. In early 1968, my orders finally came back to go to Vietnam. When you say you encountered protesters, what do you mean? Were they yelling at Jews, calling you names? No, they weren't directing it at me. We were in California, and I was in the Haight-Ashbury district, and they were having a rally. And they were just speaking about the war and talking about the social issues of how we were killing women and children in Vietnam that had done nothing to us. 
that this country was more or less on an imperialistic quest rather than liberating the people. They weren't directing it at me, but it was just hearing that that I couldn't handle. And I don't know if it was out of my bravado or brainwashing or if it was out of guilt for what I had done. I, I never figured that out because it took many years for me to realize that what I did in Vietnam was wrong. And I think part of it has to do with the human nature of, of many, that it's hard for a man to say, I was suckered, I was chomped, I did this. So it took me a long time to reach that conclusion that because of my ignorance, I killed and maimed a lot of people, destroyed a lot of lives that had I been aware of what was really going on, I would not have participated in. How were you raised? Did this class with the values that you had growing up? Yes, I was raised. My grandmother was Seminole. My grandmother never spoke of God. She always spoke of a creator. She told me stories about her people, and even though they were persecuted, that without finding love for mankind itself, that they couldn't have existed. She told me that. I learned that we were part of this earth, you know, that all men were part of the earth, regardless of their color. So it made me not understand at that time where she was coming from. It took me many years to really understand because I was young when she was telling me this stuff. And with the hate that I had, I was in a mode where I felt that violence would be the only thing that would change what was going on. And I think that was perpetrated by the number of beatings that I saw black youth suffer for no reason other than being themselves. It was devastating for me to live up to what she was telling me. I couldn't understand it, how she could even tell me this. Why are history books so full of lies? When no word is spoken of why the Indian dies. Or that the Chicanos love the California land. Do our books all say it was discovered by one white man? Well, that's just a lie. One of the many, and we've had plenty. I don't want more of the same. No more genocide in my name. Oh, why are the weapons of war so young? And why are there always rich ones around when it's done? Why are so many of the soldiers black or brown? Do we think it's because they're good at cutting other people down? Well, that's just a lie. One of the many and we've had plenty. I don't want more of the same. No more genocide in my name. Doing 
of my later years as a teenager when Martin Luther King was out. I couldn't identify with him because he had that ideology that violence would not solve any problem. So I couldn't have been a part of his organization. So it left only one thing for me, and that was to believe in what I was hearing about saving the country from communism and this and that. And I think in that I was thinking that if I went to war and came back because of this, I would at least be treated better because I'm now a war veteran. And it didn't change anything. So those are the reasons that you went in the military? To yes, I went in because I grew up in a family of ten, a single home. My mother was the only one working. My father and mother were separated. And between my grandmother and mother are the ones that raised me. And I think most of my nurturing came from my grandmother because my mother worked like from sunup to sundown. And I saw the military as being a way that I could, number one, get out of Mississippi and send money back to help my mother. You know, with no social programs, it was the most opportune thing out there. I think it's the same way today. What did you do after you finished high school? You didn't go right in the military, did you? Yes, I did. Matter of fact, I signed up what they call now a delayed entry program. I joined the service before I graduated. Pending my graduation, I would go in. I had taken the physical and gone through everything, and all I was waiting to graduate then, I would leave Mississippi and go to boot camp, and that's what I did. Did you find some time in there to get married, Will? I think you were married before you went in the military. No, what had happened, my wife and I grew up about 10 or 15 miles apart, and I remember she used to come through our yard, go into her aunt's house, and I would see her quite often, and we would talk. Then she moved to New York, and I lost contact with her until the end of 62, when I was getting ready to go to Germany, and I ran into her in New York. And after I came back from Germany, I visited her in New York, and I brought her to Hawaii. We got married in Hawaii on December 30th of 1965. So that was before you actually went over to Vietnam for your yes. first tour? Yes. She got to Hawaii in, I think it was around August of 65, and we were married in December, and I went to Vietnam in January. Was the racism any less bad, Will, in the military? No, not really. It was not as late as it was in Mississippi, but you could see it, it, it was still there. And you could see it by the treatment that one got in the military. The, the difference, like, for instance, on KP, just pulling duty on the post in Fort Jackson. Usually, people of color were the ones that washed the pans, did the dirt work, and it carried over to Vietnam, where doing my second tour there, one of the biggest race rides including the ones in this country, was in Cameron Bay in Vietnam. And it was because of the difference in treatment of people of color and others. And what was happening is they were taking people out of their MOS, or their job description, and putting them at what they call the scum of a unit, doing the 
physical work rather than doing work that they were trained for, that they specialized in. And it got to a boiling point to where it actually caused a riot. I don't know if anybody in the U.S. really heard about that. I don't recall reading about it myself at the time. Yeah, it was. It was one story on it, but it never hit the big media the way it should. And this was in 1969 at Cameron Bay. Wow. You weren't around there at that time, were you? Yeah, that was where I was doing my second tour. So you saw it? You were in the middle of it? Yes, I saw it. I was supposed to be in it. I was attached to an MP unit at Cameron Bay. And when it happened, we were told to go up and quell it or to try to to stop it from happening. And I refused to do it. I think that's when I came to my senses because at that time, most of the people of color that were right and were the ones that had been pulled out of their jobs and they were the ones that was running the ammo dump, the weapons, they had everything. I didn't see where we could stop it as an MP unit. So I talked to my first sergeant and we didn't go. We didn't go up with guns trying to stop them. It was mediation that took place that brought it to an end. Let's go back. I want to pick up a thread that I dropped along the way, Will. Did you have a religious upbringing? Yes, I was brought up in the church every Sunday. We went to Sunday school and stayed through the afternoon service. It was mandatory we did it. So we didn't have a choice doing it. That was Methodist, right? What What was your relationship to that? What did you think about it? I thought, I, I don't know. I believed in, I enjoyed it, number one. I would like to hear the Bible story. And at the same time, I was maybe wanted to say confused in my younger years of hearing people in the church talk about God and my grandmother only spoke of a creator so she never used the term God and she didn't go to church now my mother went and my sibling but my grandmother and grandfather did and it took me a while to understand what the connection was between the creator and God I'm hearing all this stuff about Jesus being born on Christmas Day and this stuff and the creation of the world back in Genesis. And at the same time, my grandmother is referring to someone greater, but a different name. So did you stay a Methodist all along the way? No, no. I came back after my first tour overseas. I came back on leave and went to a church in Mississippi that... I had been going to since I was a youth and was a member of it. And after two and a half years away, when I came back on leave, I went to church and the people were putting pressure on me because I hadn't paid my tithes while I was gone. And my father had built this church and they owed him, they never finished paying him for the construction of it and he had passed on. And I got angry at that time because I saw things as being wrong that they're telling me that I'm not a member anymore. I was taken off the rolls because I didn't pay during the time that I was overseas. But yet they never paid my father for doing it. And it was to a point where I think had my sisters not stepped in, I probably would have tried to take legal actions to take the building away from them. I take it you stopped attending that church. 
Yes. I stopped attending any church for many years. I didn't go to church at all. And I think the first church that I actually joined was here in Madison, and it must have been around 1979 or maybe 1980. I joined a church called Mount Zion Baptist, and I was there for a while. I got uneasy and left it and went to a Pentecostal church and joined and left it for a while. Because I saw within the churches that many people, rather than looking at people as people that were judging people. I also saw it as people coming together as if it's a fashion show, that you got to wear a three-piece suit or something. I started believing that the church is in the heart, that the building is just a place where people assemble, and the spirit is there. And I did feel the spirit in, in those churches. In a sense, it drove me away. You and I have a lot in common that way. You know, in Quaker practice, we don't refer to the buildings as churches. We refer to them as meeting houses because that's where you meet with folks. Yes, I look at it sometimes like a filling station. At times, the tank is running low. You go and you refill, and you go to church and you hear a message. But I don't feel i got to do it every Sunday. I go to the same place every Sunday. I don't feel that you have to be a member of any certain denomination to be a good Christian or to make it to the other side. That's why I say we operate on a free spirit. We still go to church, but we just don't know what church we'll be going to. Like on Sunday mornings, we'll get up and have no idea what church we're stopping in. For me, it's better that way. It's it's more peaceful that way. You don't get caught up in the inner working or the inner not working of it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that goes on. Uh, Will, I wanted to step back. You got out of the military, got back from Vietnam in 1970, and I think Dot was still there waiting for you. I think you were at an angry period in your life there. Uh, were you going through PTSD stuff right away? What was happening for you? Yes, I was, and I didn't understand it at the time because I know my daughter and my wife used to tell me that I had changed, that I was different. I wasn't like I was before I went to Vietnam. I couldn't understand or didn't want to understand where they were coming from. And at the same time, I think had it not been for me knowing my wife and her knowing me prior to my going to Vietnam, I've often wondered where would I be now. Because when I look at the statistics of how many Vietnam vets were divorced, and you look at the other side, most of them were married after they came back, and their wives never knew the real person. I think that was part of what caused those divorces. But I was fortunate that my wife knew my heart before I went, and when I came back, she knew that something about me had changed. I had lost that ability to communicate. didn't come back really until a few years ago. In the 80s, when I first went for PTSD treatment, I tried to come back. In 92, I tried to speak out against Desert Storm, and I couldn't. Just watching the war on TV and listening to what seemed to me to be a thirst for blood from my fellow Americans, it shut me down. 
it bothered me so much that my counselor told me don't watch TV because it was bringing back too many of the memories. I began to have more flashbacks, more nightmares. So it was bothering me mentally just to watch it. And I think that and fear itself is why I did come out stronger during Desert Storm. By me having had the chance to go through the PTSD programs and working with a counselor, in 201, it was easier for me to come out and speak about my experiences and to really open up the information that I had stored inside for so many years that I was afraid to talk about or didn't want to remember it was easy for me to do after September 11, 201. Are you saying that you didn't talk to your wife about that even? No, I didn't go into any detail with her about a lot of stuff. Like, we talked about it because she knew all the people in my squad and my platoon. My wife knew because when we were in Hawaii, I used to bring them by my house and we would go to their houses, the uh, NCOs, and we would have the enlisted people come and we would just have a get-together, play cards and party. And she used to often ask me about them, you know, and she knew many of them were killed. My, my unit was, I would say, wiped out. It bothered her a lot. I know at times when I wouldn't talk about it and she would mention somebody's name that she knew, she would cry when she would think about it because we were older than most of the people in my platoon. Not a lot older, but I was 22 when I went to Vietnam. But, you know, we were older compared to the 18-year-olds. And it bothered her a lot because she had also made a bond with a lot of these young people. And even now, it bothers her because she went on the net and looked up my company and pulled the names off of the wall that she actually knew. It bothers her. So I think she was victimized by it also, by just knowing these people, to know now that they died for Neil. I think we can both thank God that you had Dot there for you when you came back. Yeah, she's been, she's been a pillar. She has been that shoulder that I needed many days to lean on when I don't know what I would have done. She's been there, even though she used to chastise me when I would fight so much, like I used to fight almost every day for no real reason. It bothered her. I think she was worried about me hurting somebody, killing somebody, or vice versa, or going to jail. I can now only think how much that must have affected she and my daughter when I was living that way. I didn't even realize that I was that way. I wouldn't accept it. In your Methodist upbringing, did they talk about violence and peace and that kind of thing when you were being brought up? Well, my grandmother did. My grandmother advocated against the military. She didn't want me to go in. Matter of fact, I remember I must have been about eight or nine years old, and she had an old canteen that one of my brothers had brought back when he was in service. Now, I remember I used to have to fill it up with hot water and wrap it in rags, and I would put it at her feet at night in the winter to keep her feet warm, and she would use the water the next morning to wash her face. It would still be warm. And I remember 
when I was older and talking about the military, she said that the only thing good about the military was that And I didn't understand it, what she meant by it, but now I do. So you're saying that your grandmother, a Seminole Indian, she taught you about peace and that kind of thing, but you didn't get it from your Methodist upbringing. No, no. What my grandmother did, she spoke of it, and that's what was puzzling to me, was that she could tell me of how her people had been persecuted. And at the same time, she was telling me that our existence depended on peace and justice, that everyone should have justice. She taught me this. And it was conflicting because at that time I had so much hate that I wanted to destroy people that had caused so much problems for my parents on on both sides, from the African side and my grandmother's side. I couldn't understand how she could be so docile or so nonviolent after, you know, her telling me these stories, you know, how can this be? And I think that's part of why I couldn't have joined with Martin Luther King because he was saying the same thing that she was saying. I couldn't understand it. Even though in the Bible in Sunday school they were saying, turn the other cheek. That part, I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand how we were created equal and treated different. So it it was troubling. And it took many, many years for me to see the light and to understand where my grandmother was coming from. Is the racism up here any better or worse than you've experienced elsewhere? It exists. It still exists. It's not as blatant. And I think many times people do it without realizing what they're doing. I think many times people feel they're doing good when in reality it is helping to keep it alive. And I look at many of the social workers, and I think they're trapped in that to where they have to play within the system, even though many times the system is what creates the problem. And a good example of that is when we brought people into Madison, evacuees from Hurricane Katrina, and they were located in one area in Madison in buildings that were condemned a couple of years ago. They had been condemned. I'm fit to live. And we had gone there, I did, with a homeless group a little over a year ago and tried to get the city or someone to let us use those buildings. And we couldn't because they were condemned, but yet the hurricane evacuees that came to Madison were put in those same buildings. So it's like the social worker that did it was doing a good thing to help those people. But at the same time, I feel that she was locating them in a high crime area, the highest crime area in the city, and saying that these people are better off. I was saying that if you had put them in a pup tent, they would be better off. But it's not the answer. And I think now the people, both in city government and the social workers, beginning to understand where I was coming from. Because some of the people have written articles that they are unhappy. This one lady wrote an article stating that her mother had worked all her life to move them out of the projects in New Orleans 
she succeeded in doing that, and she had not lived in it. She had a decent job there. But yet, coming here, she was put right back in that same environment where she's worried about her kids now. Will, I wanted to follow another thing forward. You said you wanted to speak out against the Gulf War back in the early 90s, but you couldn't quite find a place to do that. Had you been making some kind of transition from being violence-prone to, I don't know, I don't think you think of yourself as a pacifist necessarily. Where are you on that scale now? I'm I'm, I'm not a pacifist, but I believe that violence does not solve the problem. During Desert Storm, I think what bothered me more is many of the veterans that were in a group that I'm in seemed to be happy when they would see on the news where these people were burned on this road uh, between Kuwait and Baghdad where people were just, to me, they were murdered. And I couldn't understand how people could be happy with something like this happening. I tried speaking out, I tried watching it, and I remember I called in on a program on C-SPAN and stated my views about it. But after watching it so much, my counselor at the VA told me to stop watching it. So I stopped, and I stopped talking about it. During that time period, I hadn't gone through any extensive program the way I did afterwards, where I could open up and really give my true feelings about my experiences. I think I was getting to a point to where I lost faith in the politicians as a whole. And this time, after 201, I looked at things differently. I start feeling that we, the people, are responsible, just as responsible because we don't keep the politicians accountable for their actions. After 201, I can't understand how people now can say we have to support the policies of our president when within that same example, it's say when any government is destructive of any of these means, it's the right of the people to change or abolish it. That part of it struck me more after September 11, 2001, than it did during my childhood. I think you're saying that you feel that way about the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. Is that right? Yes. Are there wars that you think are good that, um, you know, if you were a young man again, that you would be willing to fight in? No, because I think when we look at what causes war and what drives wars, I don't think we could classify them as being good or bad, because I think if we as a people in this country, which I believe is the strongest country in the world, and perhaps could be the best country in the world, that we react rather than act. And by that, I mean if our policies in this country were policies that lifted people up for humanitarian purposes rather than oppressing people throughout the world for their resources or to attain power, that we wouldn't have the problems, that the edifices for going to war would be eliminated. I think many times things that this country have done have created the nucleus that caused us to go to war and especially in Iraq and Afghanistan. Prior to September 11th and the center bombing in 1993, 
This country had not been hit by any terrorists. It had been happening in the Middle East, but never on American soil until I think 1993. That made me ask the question, why? And when you think of how the U.S. aligned with Osama bin Laden when Russia was fighting in Afghanistan, and how the U.S. created the Taliban to get Russia out of that region, and you go on and find out it was because of the need for a certain region to run their oil from the Caspian Sea through Afghanistan and Pakistan, you put stuff together and you can see where people will want to blow up things in America because they feel oppressed. It doesn't justify it. It was wrong. But you can see if things have been just the opposite, that that need wouldn't be there. Just hearing the word terrorist all the time roused me because I think we in this country use words and expressions and have a short memory of what and how this country was built. I see another side that I learned in Vietnam. I think the greatest thing I learned in Vietnam is that I am no better than those people that I was killing and persecuting, that we are the same. I also learned that people will fight and die for self-determination, and I think that is part of what's happening in Iraq and in Afghanistan. We used Saddam Hussein to stop Iran back in the 80s. He was America's boy. Rumsfeld was there with him. But yet when he raises up and want to change and not be the puppet anymore, then he's the boogeyman. And see, we bring these problems on ourselves by our actions of exploitation of people, their rights and their resources throughout the world for profit. Oh, I marched to the Battle of New Orleans At the end of the early British War the Young land started growing the Young blood started flowing But I ain't marching anymore For I killed my share of engines In a thousand different fights I was there at the little big farm I heard many men lying, I saw many more dying, but I ain't marching anymore. It's always the old to lead us to the wars, it's always the young to fall. Now look at all we've won with the saber and the gun, tell me is it worth it all? For I stole California from the Mexican land Fought in the bloody Civil War Yes, I even killed my brothers So many others But I ain't marching anymore For I marched to the battles of the German trench In a war that was bound to end all wars Oh, I must have killed a million men now they want me back again, but I ain't marching anymore. It's always the old to lead us to the wars. It's always the young to fall. Now look at all we've won with a saber and the gun. Tell me, is it worth it all? For I flew the final mission in the Japanese skies. Set off the mighty mushroom roar 
When I saw the cities burning, knew that I was learning that I ain't marching anymore. Now the labor leader is screaming when they close the missile plant. United Fruit screams at the Cuban shore. Call it peace or call it treason. Call it love or call it reason. But I ain't marching anymore. No, I ain't marching anymore. Part of my question, Will, about if there is a war that you felt like you could fight in is to try and be clear what your religious or spiritual principle underneath all of this is. I think you said you couldn't fight in a war, so maybe that makes you at least anti-war if you're not a pacifist. Is that correct? Yeah. What I could do, say if something happened in a country where we were actually going to help people for humanitarian purposes, I could be a part of it. But everything I've read about the Western world, they haven't gone and fought for those reasons, other than maybe a friend of mine who my Veterans for Peace chapter was named after, Clarence Kalin, fought in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade at 17 years old uh, against fascism. Something like that I could support. When you are really sincere about helping people, but I feel that from the inception of this country, with all the wars that they've had, or not wars, are the actions that they've had in the Latin Americas, that all this stuff was done for profit, that with the system that we have now, it can only survive if you have people at the very top that control everything, and people on the bottom who go and fight to protect the assets of those in control. Does this at all connect with the gospel that you learned growing up about loving your enemies and all that? Yes. I think that plays a great part in it. And that's another part that I think drove me away from structured religion. Because when I hear people like Farwell or Pat Robertson saying we should go and kill these people, kill the enemy, it, it goes against the teachings that I have. Because I think in the Bible it said, love your neighbor. To me, a lot of the stuff in religion now is hypocrisy because so many people like the life they're living that they don't have time to look or think about the lives of others in other parts of the world. Will, I wanted to ask you about this group that you sing with, the Gospel Heirs, the Madison Gospel Heirs. You were founder of that with your wife. What do you do and where do you do it? Anywhere people call us. Programs usually last from a half hour to one hour. We sang songs from back when I was young, the older songs, a cappella. We do it in churches, nursing homes, hospitals, at rallies, anywhere where people will have us, we'll go. Can you give me some examples of the names of songs? Okay, Sending Up Timber is one of the songs, and the story behind it is that we have to do things on earth to build that mansion in the sky, that our deeds here is what give us that place in the sky. The one I told you about earlier, tell me how long will it be? It's about freedom. How long will our young people be imprisoned by worldly things? 
or when can they be free to live life rather than be a conformist? When will the time come when you can be yourself? Who are the gospelers? There's four of us, my wife, me, a young man named Billy Brown, and John L. Justice, who is the youngest member of the group. He's in his 40s. We started, my wife and I just started singing one Sunday, I think it was 1980. We were in a little church in Madison, and we were just sitting there listening at the message and start harming. And growing up, I was used to hearing the Five Blind Boys of Mississippi, the Soul Stirrers, and other groups would come to these small churches in the town I was in at revival time, and they would sing. And I sang in groups in Mississippi. And even in Vietnam, we had five of us that did what we call doo-wop. So I've always liked singing. So this Sunday, we were just harming it. Some men in the church asked us, why wouldn't we sing a song? And my wife and I did it. We had never done it before together. And the man that asked us to sing ended up singing with us. And that was the formation of the gospel airs. If someone wanted to arrange with you, how would they contact you to get a hold of the gospel airs? They could use my email or my telephone number. If you know of some church or your church wanted us to do it, all you would have to do is call me. Okay. And I think your email is kuchi 66 That's C-U-C-H-I-66 at badgerinternet.com. Is that right? Yes, that's it. And your phone number, do you want to say that for our listeners, too, in case they want to get a hold of Gospel Airs, or maybe just get a hold of you to speak? Yes, I can give it. It's 608-846-1030. And I also have a cell number that's 608-279-1357. Would it be okay with you if I posted these on my website? Yes, that would be fine. And I guess I'll also mention for our listeners, you're with Veterans for Peace, and a contact for them will be on my website. Uh, you're also active with the Madison Area, Area Peace, Peace Coalition. Coalition yes. uh, and their website is madpeace.org. Yeah, M-A-D-P-E-A-C-E dot org. I want to thank you for taking the time, Will, to speak with us. You've had an incredible journey. I want to also send thanks to Dot for being there with you and making a difference. Okay, and I appreciate that. I want to thank you also for letting me do this. Thanks again, Will. In my hometown, Bristol, Tennessee Sitting on my mother's knee Watching Amos and Andy on TV Amos was Santa Claus on Christmas Eve Little girl was tugging at his sleeve Singing, I have a doll, my own color, please He said, honey, you can make believe just then came a call on the telephone It was the mayor asked if my daddy was home This was for his ears alone Mom and me listened on the second phone Mayor said, 
freedom rides are on their way They'll be here by Christmas Day Our laws they vow to disobey Cause our school's as wide as the Milky Way Well now we're really in a fix Can't let them show us a black country hits But once we let the races mix It's goodbye Jim Crow politics First it's 40 acres and a mule Then they want to swim in our swimming pool Pretty soon they'll be wanting to go to school Where we were taught the golden rule Imagine them telling us how to live Imagine them telling us how to live We're number one in America Number one in America Beat the drum for us and overcome in Number one in America Axe handles versus the right to vote Oh, I jury, that's all she wrote Back of the bus, don't rock the boat Separate but equal by the throat That was 20-odd years ago Is changing the status quo The freedom land is lying low It's shackled down on a rotten road And a black-skinned man still gets the snub But he applies to the country club But he still gets hired to trim the shrubs Get down on the floor and scrub There's a businessman out on his yacht He's a rain of sunshine patriot And all this talk about boycotts He says it's all comic plot To be number one in America Number one in America Beat the drums around the sand Overcoming Birmingham Dynamite in a Baptist church Four teenage girls lost in the lurch Fire hoses and the billy clubs Police dogs and the racist thugs The night riders and the lynching mob Lawmen say they're only doing their job To stay number one in America Clucks clan still around with the permit to march in my hometown. But only on Virginia's ground, the Tennessee side turned them down. The sheriff stood there with his deputies, ostensibly to keep the peace. But he made us this guarantee. By God, they'll not march into Tennessee. Network cameras were triple tier. We laughed and cried and hooted and jeered. But mostly we stood there hold fear to the Ku Klux Klan disappeared. In some far off distant dawn, when the black is president and not a pawn, 
Well, they burn crosses on the White House lawn And talk of all those days by dawn Imagine them telling us how to live Imagine them telling us how to live We're number one in America Number one in America Beat drum for Uncle Sam Overcoming Birmingham Oh, to be number one in America Last Christmas Eve at the Kmart store A white family there, they was dirt poor Father said, kids, pick one toy, no more Even though we can ill afford I watched your son choose a basketball The oldest girl, the creosote show The littlest girl chose a black-skinned doll And she held it to her chest and all I watched to see how they'd react Since they were white and the doll was black But the mom and dad were mad of fact They just checked to see if the doll was correct So may you make a rebel stand Where black and white go hand in hand Till they reach the freedom land Where the lion lies down in the land Oh, number one in America Number one in America Beat the drum for Uncle Sam Overcoming Birmingham Dynamite in a Baptist church Four teenage girls lost in the lurch Fire hoses and the billy clubs Police dogs and the racist thugs Back the clock, Little Rock Bolt and sold on the auction block Night riders in the lynching mob Longmen say they're only doing their job To stay number one in America You've been listening to a Spirit in Action interview with Will Williams of the Veterans for Peace. You can hear this program again and other programs via my website at northernspiritradio.org. Music featured in this program includes No More Genocide by Holly Near, I Ain't Marching Anymore by Phil Oaks, and Number One in America by David Massengill. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher cause for you than this To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness Love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness.